Amen, amen. What an honor it is to be here and share God's word. Let us uh, do so as we begin with prayer. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to share the beauty and the power of the finished work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the blood applied. There is no greater gift than that. Lord, as we open up your word, we pray we do so uh, sensitive to the Spirit's uh, calling and work in our hearts and our minds. Lord, let us respond uh, with 100% faithfulness to you. Lord, we thank you for uh, the grace and the mercy of the Lord. We thank you that you meet us in our darkest places. And Lord, you bring us into the light of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat you're sitting in or underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1068, 1068. We're going to continue our series that we've started a few weeks ago, just talking about the gospel and fellowship. This is our fourth message on that, and we're going to build on what we learned over the past several weeks concerning relationships, specifically relationships amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, so those who have put their faith in the finished work of Christ. And it's based on the work of Christ that we learned very early on that we are a family. We are a family, and as a family, we are to love and encourage one another for the glory of the Lord. Right? Now, this sounds easy. But guess what? It's not. It's not easy. Why? Because all of us have been on the giving and receiving end of hurt, right? We have to be honest about that. We have not only given people hurt, but we've also received hurt from people. And we're not just talking about people. We are talking about, again, brothers and sisters in Christ. We've had a thought, said some things, done some hurtful things to the bride of Christ, the very bride that Jesus loves and died for. Uh, One of the reasons why over the past few weeks uh, we have been uh, studying the context of relationships and specifically fellowship is because it's important for us to understand that when when that is broken, and it will be and can be, and at times it's not a bad thing based on how we handle it, what we do with it, but the important part is how do we reestablish fellowship within the church, within brothers and sisters in Christ when things have been hurt when things have gone wrong. And last week we looked at forgiveness, right? Uh, forgiveness is really that first step. We learned that for, forgiveness first and foremost begins with God, right? It's in light of the gospel, how God in Christ has forgiven us so graciously that it, it gives us the, the understanding of why forgiveness is so important amongst relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. And we recognize that forgiveness is an act of faith, right? God has commanded us to forgive, right? And it's in that moment that we also have to recognize that forgiveness is hard, right? Because we've been hurt, we've been wounded, and that's the very last thing we want to do, right? Because there's something inside of us when we're wronged that we want justice. And so as forgiveness, as an act of faith, and knowing that it is hard, we are trusting, we are releasing that individual in that situation in the hands of the Lord, trusting that he will do what's necessary, right? That's what we're doing. We're letting that thing go, if you will. Now we're going to talk about uh, reconciliation, reconciliation. So we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to pull another layer off the onion, if you will. Uh, Reconciliation is the process of removing the obstacles that are in the way so that we can be on good terms again, right? And this is what happens in relationships that are broken. Things get in the way, right? Lies were said, hurtful words were said, actions have been done, thoughts have been marinating for a long time. And those things need to be removed. All of those things are obstacles that get in the way of our fellowship with one another. And so the relationship, in order for it to 
to move forward, if you will, there needs to be a place of reconciliation. Now, how many of us have broken relationships and there are obstacles in the way, right? And again, we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. So your brother or sister in Christ, guess what? Maybe your husband or wife, right? It may be somebody living in your own home, a child or grandchild. It may be your neighbor across the street, or it may be the very person that you're sitting next to today, right? And so there's obstacles, and those obstacles need to be uh, moved away. So from God's word, what do we learn about reconciliation? Uh, first, reconciliation begins with God. It begins with God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, we see one of the greatest pictures of a great clarity of uh, reconciliation according to the word of the Lord, from God's perspective. And what happens in 2 Corinthians is Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. It's a church that he dearly loves. In Acts 15, we know that God put uh, Paul there in Corinth, and there uh, Corinth, and Paul was able to plant the, the church there, and Paul was there for just a short period of time. Uh, and, and when he leaves, uh, false teaching becomes, uh, begins to come into the church. And any time uh, the church begins to buy into false doctrine. In other words, when the church chooses to move away from the purity of the gospel, major things begin to happen, right? And they're not good things. And that's what happens in the church in Corinth. So Paul writes to them because he loves them. He wants them to get back on the right path when it comes to the gospel. He wants them to rediscover again the beauty and the power of the gospel. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he begins to talk about the motives on why the gospel is so important in his life and should be so important in the church's life. He begins in verse 11. He talks about that the gospel message honors the Lord. He says in verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing that the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. In other words, he's saying it is not about me. It's about the honor of the Lord. How so? He says in verse 12 and 13, he says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. What is Paul doing here? Paul says that those who are opposed to the gospel message. They're not really concerned about the condition of the heart. They're looking at the outward appearance. And guess what? Tradition tells us that Paul didn't look so hot, right? We don't know exactly what he looked like, but he wasn't appealing. And so the, gospel, the, the false teachers were going in and say, why are you going to believe in Paul? Look at him, right? In fact, they're going to say something in verse 13. They're going to say that for if we are beside, in other words, crazy, they thought Paul was crazy, right? Ourselves, it is for God. If we are in right mind, it is for you. So he says, I don't, I don't really care if outward appearance, I don't look that great. I, I don't even care if people think I'm crazy, what I do care about is that the gospel goes out for the glory of the Lord and for the good of those around me. That's what he says. Though I may look crazy, it's not about an appearance. It's about the condition of the heart. And with all that is happening in the church in Corinth, the, chur the church needs what? The church needs the gospel. And what compels Paul to stay central to the message of the gospel? He says in verse 14 and 15, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And because of that, Paul's perspective has changed. How so? He says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, Paul says, there was a time where I just thought Jesus was some mere man, that he was some criminal who died on the cross, 
But on that Damascus road, when I met my resurrected Jesus face to face, he changed my life. And he says, my life has been changed, therefore my perspective has changed. I have been given new life. Verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you see the beauty of the gospel? I have new life. I have new desires. I have new priority. I have new promises. I have new purpose in life. I have new commitments. And the beauty of the gospel is that God takes the initiative, right? We just heard that. How God pursues us, right? And that's what he says in verses 18 and 19. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Again, there was obstacles in the way, right? But God takes the initiative. He reconciles us to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In other words, Jesus was the offended party, right? We offended him with our sin. We sinned against him, but because of his love, he made the first move. He chose to move, remove the obstacles that stood in the way. No longer are our sins counted against us. No longer is the relationship broken. No longer are we separated from our maker, our creator. We are united with him. And because we are now united with him, we are given the ministry of reconciliation, the assignment of reconciliation. And that assignment is not just the message of the gospel that goes out to the outside world that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Guess what? The same gospel message that brings people from death to life is the same gospel message that you and I need today. And that's what Paul talks about. He says in verses 20 and 21, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as Christ's ambassadors, we are given the lifelong calling, right? What a beautiful calling it is to represent him in all of our relationships, specifically in our relationships with one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And as ambassadors of Christ, we are reminded that the obstacles that stand in the way They can be removed. Why? Because God has reconciled us to himself. There is power in the gospel, and the power of the gospel should motivate us to widen our hearts even when hurt badly. We can be reconciled to one another because of the finished work of Christ. Now, before we move forward, I think it's important to recognize some of the major differences between forgiveness and reconciliation. That's why we separated those two, and that's why we're going to move on to restoration, Lord willing, next week. Forgiveness is always required, right? Forgiveness doesn't require anything from the other person. Forgiveness, first and foremost, is about you and God, not you and the other person. That's important. Forgiveness is the first step to reconciliation, but reconciliation doesn't always happen. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Where forgiveness is primarily between us and the Lord, reconciliation always requires the other person, always requires the other party. And sometimes the other person, the other party doesn't want it, right? Sometimes even because of the severity of the sin, the severity of the offense against you, reconciliation may not be possible, The other part is you cannot reconcile a relationship with someone who refuses to repent from what they did, right? That's important. So forgiveness is is ultimate. Forgiveness needs to happen, 
But reconciliation may not happen. Why? Because it involves not just you and the Lord. It involves you, the Lord, and the other person. I remember in uh, the book of Philemon, we read these names towards the end a few times, and I'll read them again because something happens in verses 23 and 24. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Paul mentions a lot of people here, right? A lot of different names. Uh, one of those being Mark. Uh, Mark and Paul had a falling out. In Acts uh, chapter 15, uh, there was a falling out. Uh, Mark is uh, the cousin of Barnabas, and there was some friction that happened there, and uh, th- that fellowship was broken. But here's what we know. Because both Paul and Mark chose to give and receive forgiveness, right, and, and take that next step, their relationship was reconciled. How much so? In 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is at the very end of his life, What he longed for more than almost anything else was to have Mark by his side while he was almost on his deathbed, right? So you see this beautiful relationship being reconciled. Then Paul mentions Demas, right? Uh, The scripture says that that Demas was one of the, the, the fellow workers along Paul. So there was a point in time where they were working in the ministry together. However, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it tells us that, that Demas chose the things of this world over the things of God. Right? And so that, that fellowship was broken, and it appears it was never restored. So you have one relationship that was reconciled, and you have one that was not. So what does reconciliation require? At the very least, in light of the gospel, reconciliation is a movement of love. A movement of love. And this is important. In order to begin removing the obstacles in a relationship that has been broken, someone has to make the first move, right? I mean, someone has to make the first move. Uh, we see an amazing picture of this in Genesis 33. Uh, in Genesis 33, we have uh, two brothers, Jacob and Esau, right? So for 20 years, there's been hostility. For 20 years, there's been hatred. For 20 years, there's, there's been relational baggage. Jacob has deceived his brother. He has lied to his brother. He has stolen the birthright from, his, from the older brother, right? And, and, and Esau hates Jacob so much that he wants to kill him, right? So for 20 years, there's been this avoiding of one another. Jacob is literally oftentimes running for his life. And in Genesis 32, Jacob spends some time with the Lord. That big wrestling match, right? That wrestling match that happens. And and, and here we are in Genesis 33, and that encounter is finally going to happen. That face-to-face interaction is going to happen between Jacob and Esau. And how does it go down? Well, in Genesis 33, verses 1 and 2, the scripture says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So Jacob sees his brother, his brother that he's been trying to avoid for 20 years. And not only does he see uh, Esau, Esau has 400 people with him, 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put, uh, he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. So in other words, he says, I don't know how this is going to go down, but just in case Esau comes and retaliates and, and wants to kill me, you got a head start to escape, right? That's what he's kind of saying here. Uh, and before, leading up to all of this, there, there's been no indication at all that Jacob Jacob is sorry for what he's done. None. But what happens in verse 3 is amazing. In verse 3 it says, He, speaking of Jacob, himself went on before them, 
bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near uh, to his brother. So Jacob goes to Esau, and he's bowing down to the ground. Now that idea of bowing down is not the picture of or you just had an, a performance or a skit, and you're just taking a bow before the crowd as they cheer for you, right? That's not the picture here. The bowing down here is he's on all fours, right? He's on his hands and knees, and he's bowing before the Lord. And, it, and it's a picture of, I'm, I'm sorry, I've done you wrong. Now keep in mind, in Genesis 32, during that wrestling match with the Lord, the scripture says that, that Jacob's hip was dislocated, right? So this, this bowing down, and, and the picture is he, he bows down, he gets up, he walks a little bit more, he bows down, he gets up, he walks a little more. He does that seven times. And can you imagine doing that with a dislocated hip? It, it, it was extremely painful, right? And it's a reminder to us that making a move of love to reconciliation in a relationship can often be very, very painful. And with his movements, Jacob is acknowledging that I am wrong and I am sorry. I am seeking forgiveness from my brother. And how does Esau respond after 20 years of all of this stuff? Well, Genesis 33, verse 4. I mean, so a, a powerful, powerful verse. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and he kissed him and they wept. Now, if you're in Esau's shoes and you got all this baggage, all this fear, all this hurt, all this stuff, I mean, your birthright has been robbed from you. How are you going to respond? And here Esau receives the forgiveness of Jacob, and he also gives forgiveness to Jacob. You know, we don't know why Esau brought those 400 men. We can speculate, but here's what we do know. After verse 4, guess what? We don't hear anything else about these 400 men, right? They're gone. They're gone. What, what a beautiful picture. Again, forgiveness is, necess is a necessary step in reconciliation, and that step always requires a movement of love. In Matthew 5, Jesus speaks about reconciliation, in verses 23 and 24, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So in other words, you remember that, hey, I've wronged somebody. I did the wronging, right? Leave your gift, therefore, or there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And this is an amazing picture, because Jesus is in Galilee, right? The great Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching about the message of the kingdom, right? And here you have an individual, they're taking their gift to the altar, right? And typically that would be in Jerusalem. So you have a 40-mile walk, 40-mile journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, and you're taking a gift, but it's not just uh, any gift, right? It's not, it's not a gift of sacrifice, an offering of sacrifice to the Lord for the atonement of sin. No, this is a, this is a gift of gratitude, right? So you, you take that 40-mile track, and you just imagine as a mom, right? You got all your kids, all that stuff. You finally get to the temple, right? You're ready to give your gift to the Lord, your offering to the Lord, one of great gratitude, and it's there that you remembered you have wronged somebody. And what does Jesus say? immediately before you place the gift at the altar guess what you go back those 40 miles and you find them and you do everything you can to make that wrong right stop what you're doing go back and do everything you can to make it right don't wait till tomorrow don't wait 20 years right how many of us have experienced a place of relational hurt in our life and instead of moving with urgency we have held on to it thinking that it would get better over time. Time alone does not heal wounds. 
In fact, when you have a deep wound, time makes it more infected, right? I mean, you get a massive gash on your leg and you do nothing but say, oh, time will make it better. Guess what? No, you're going to be up in the hospital, right? Time with intentionality can heal wounds. Remember, reconciliation involves more than just you. It starts with forgiveness. It requires a movement of love. It's not just time. It's time with intentionality, intentional movements of love towards an individual, right? Are you willing to make a move? When you think about your relationships today, those that have been broken, specifically within the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you willing to make the first move? Third thing that we see concerning reconciliation is reconciliation requires honesty. It requires honesty. If we're going to begin the process of removing the obstacles in relationships, guess what? There has to be tremendous honesty. Often when a relationship is broken and you seek reconciliation, there will be some type of confrontation, right? There's going to be some type of confrontation. And it's important. And confrontation isn't necessarily bad, right? That's important. Sometimes for many of us, we, oh, we don't want to do that. But confrontation laced with the gospel can be a beautiful thing. And it's important to be honest about your hurts, right? But before you are honest with that individual about your hurts, you have to ask and answer the question, have I been honest with the Lord about my hurts? Have I taken it to him first before I've taken it to the one that has offended me? Why is that important? I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In verse 7, love it. Casting all your anxieties on him, that can include your hurts. Why? Because he cares for you. Now, the context of these verses is Peter is writing to the church and he's preparing them for spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is the unseen battle between good and evil, right? And you have to believe anytime we desire anything that honors the Lord, including reconciliation, Satan's going to be behind there attacking, right? He's going to attack relentlessly. And we have to be spiritually prepared for what is coming. And the very fact that we are called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God reminds us that we are not called to be strong in our own strength, but in his. And often when it comes to the brokenness that we experience in relationships, we suppress the pain. We suppress the hurts that have been given to us by others. We build walls, right? We build walls all the time. And when that moment of confrontation comes, instead of being led by the Holy Spirit, we're led by the desires of the flesh and we blow up, right? You ever been there before? We unleash all those unchecked emotions and the untamed tongue becomes another obstacle, right? Proverbs 12, 18 says this, there is one, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. How many times have we entered into a time of confrontation and though we were honest with our hurts, our emotions took over. Instead of gaining ground in reconciliation, we've only moved further and further apart. It's why often, even when we are those who have been sinned against, when our emotions get the worst of us, not the best of us, but the worst of us, and our tongue goes wild, we leave the conversation with greater bitterness, greater hurt, greater anger. When our words aren't controlled by the Spirit, even though we are the one at her, that has been hurt and sometimes hurt deeply, it doesn't help the situation. One of the indicators that we are walking by the Spirit and not being driven by the desires of the flesh is, is, is what we are speaking, that honest truth, is it being laced with gospel love, right? Again, 
this can't be done in our own strength, right? You hurt me, I'm going after you, right? That's our natural disposition. But what does this scripture teach us? Scripture talks about what it looks like to walk in maturity in the faith, right? Scripture says in Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ from uh, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, we're, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, is his church, right? It's the, one, it's the church that he died for, right? So we got to think about that as we're walking into reconciliation. And so have you been honest with your hurts, first and foremost, to the Lord before you've been honest with your hurts to the person that offended you? Why? Because it sets you in a position where you're going to be led by the Spirit and not by uh, your emotions, right? Not only should we be honest about our hurts, we also need to be honest about our hearts, our hearts. Uh, regarding conflict and reconciliation, it's important to examine our hearts honestly. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, uh, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to, to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So one of the obstacles that gets in the way of reconciliation is our, is our ability to see the splinter in their eye, but not the ability to see the two by four in our eye, right? Oftentimes it's their fault, always. It's always their fault. So it's not that we shouldn't see and express the faults that they have, but first we are to do what? We are to examine our own faults first. Reconciliation requires humility. When relational hurt comes, we typically want to start with them, not me, right? That's typically our default mode. And the gospel teaches us that before we get to them, we must start with ourselves. In honest humility, Lord, show me where I am at fault. Please show me where I have been in the flesh and not in the spirit. Lord, I, I want to own my own part in this. And even if I'm 99.99% in the right, I will own my .01 of the wrong, right? That's what the scripture is teaching us. And as we do this, Jesus gives an amazing promise. He says, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, removing the plank out of your own eye first puts you in a better position to help your brother or sister to see the speck in their eye. Again, what do we want? We want growth. We want to reestablish that relationship. And when it comes to reconciliation, I don't want to be the obstacle, right? I want God's gospel to be clearly expressed and seen. To the one who has sinned or been sinned against, ask the Lord to examine our hearts. After David committed sin, again, deceit, murder, adultery, covering up what he did, right? Trying to at least. What does he say in Psalm 139? He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So in our honest examination, our movement toward reconciliation, we are asking the Lord to do what? We're asking him to search us, to try us, to take the lead, right? We want him to take the lead in the situation. Lord, dig up all the places in my life that have dishonored you and harmed those around me, right? Lord, test my motives, my thoughts, and my actions. Where I am in error, Lord, lead me, steer me, guide me, be in the front of my life and in that situation, Reconciliation requires honesty, honesty. And lastly, at the very least, in light of the gospel, reconciliation requires a desire to change, a desire for change. 
You know, if we're going to begin the process of reconciliation and removing the obstacles that are in the relationship, it's going to require some change, right? The word for change in the Bible is repentance, right? There has to be a change. There has to be repentance by at least one person, if not both, right? That's why you are where you are in the first place, right? Somebody sinned. At least one person. Oftentimes, it's multiple people, but at least one person. So reconciliation requires repentance at least from one individual, if not both. And this is important when it comes to reconciling broken relationships. Again, you can't reconcile a relationship when someone refuses to repent, right? I mean, that is a tough place to be. You can desire reconciliation all you want. But if that person doesn't choose to own and desire to change, guess what? That relationship will not be reconciled. What is repentance and how do we know it's genuine, right? That's important. Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 8 through 10, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a, a little while. Again, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's trying to correct uh, false gospel that has gone into the church. That false gospel has impacted not only their, their commitment and mission to the community around them, but has also uh, distorted in many ways their commitment and relationships with one another because of this false gospel. So he writes a letter to them, and, and guess what? He's pretty firm about it. He's, he's firm to the degree that he, he feels guilty. He feels like, well, maybe I went a little too far. But then he recognizes, no, I said what needed to be said in a way that needed to be said for the honor and the glory of the Lord and for the betterment of the church, right? So that's what he's saying there. And then in verse 9, he says, that is it is. He says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into what? Into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul puts two forms of grief side by side, one that leads to repentance, the other one that produces death. In other words, if you really want to know if someone's repentance is genuine, their desire to change is genuine, it's not simply based on the fact that they felt bad about it, right? It's the fact that has change begin to occur. And again, we're not talking about perfection, right? That's why reconciliation is not one and done with people, right? It's, we have to reconcile relationships all the time, right? But is is there change? The word grief means to be uh, to express deep sorrow or dissatisfaction with your sin. Uh, the word repentance means to turn away or to renounce that, that way of living in order to turn the opposite direction. Again, you're turning back to the Lord. That's what reconciliation is really all about. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. Whereas worldly grief feels remorse, and oftentimes we'll say, I'm sorry. Not because ultimately that they hurt you, but because of the actions that they were doing are now coming back to haunt them, right? It's negatively impacting them. It backfired against them. Typically, the outworking of worldly grief looks like this. You're getting blamed for their sin, right? You get blamed for why they did what they did. Uh, a failure to want accountability with their actions, right? They continue to do the same hurtful things. They become defensive, minimize the situation, don't express a genuine desire to make things right. Right? So all these ways are forms of what worldly grief would look like. Right? So when you're talking about reconciliation, requiring a desire for change, we aren't just talking about outward behavior. We are talking about the inward heart because that's where the change really, really needs to happen. In the core of your heart, do you in humility grieve over your sin? David writes in Psalm 51 verse 17, 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. For change to really stick, we must be willing to change our minds about the situation, change our minds about how we're living. In other words, we are acknowledging, probably for the first time maybe, what am I really truly allowing to influence my heart and my mind, right? Why, am I, why do I keep going to that sinful behavior? And so there has to be a change of mind about the situation. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you. So Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, based on the gospel, to present your bodies, all of who you are, all of your actions, the actions that are seen, the actions that are unseen, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. How does this happen? How do we focus our minds on the things of God? Well, he says in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there has to be a mind change, right? I can't keep buying into the things of the world because the more I buy into the things of the world, like Demas, I will depart from the things of the Lord, right? And as we depart from the things of the Lord, guess what's gonna happen in our relationships? They're gonna be broken again and again and again. So there has to be a change in heart, change in mind, change in actions, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. I love what Paul says. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In other words, everything that feeds your flesh and not the spirit, everything that causes broken relationships, put those things to death. Now, what causes relationships to be broken? Listen to what he says. He says, sexual sin. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covenants, which is idolatry. He talks about, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He says, in these two, you once walked. Uh, when, when you were living in them, so this is who you used to be, but now you must put them all away. And he talks about emotional sin, anger, wrath, malice, and then he talks about verbal sin, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. So all those things, sexual sin, emotional sin, verbal sin, guess what? When we practice those things as believers, it's gonna cause relational brokenness, Right? He says, put all those things away. But notice where he anchors those things. He doesn't start with the behavior first. He gets to the heart. And what does he call all those things? He calls those things idolatry. That's what he says. He says, those things are idolatry because the deep location for change isn't first and foremost, again, the behavior. It is the heart. It's the sin beneath the sin. The root of sin, all sin, is idolatry. All sins are rooted in trusting in something or someone other than what God can provide. And when we do that, guess what? Sin is going to come into our relationships. And because of that sin, we're going to have brokenness. The only way to remove the idols of your heart is to understand more and more who you already are in Christ. That's what he does in verses 5 through 10. He says, put those things away. Why? How? Because that's not who you are anymore. That's what he's saying. Think about it like this. Find an area where you need to change. And in that specific area, place the gospel entirely in the center of your vision. Every time, why? Because if you're, when your focus moves off of yourself and onto him, you will trust and believe that change can actually happen through the power of Christ and the gospel that is in you, right? You can change. You don't have to keep doing the same things you're doing and hurting the people around you, but you can't do it on your own. You need to recognize who you are in Christ and live on that power and that strength, not your own. That's why he goes on to say in verse 12 through 14, he says, put on then as God chosen one, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In verse 14, he says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I mean, consider all those amazing characteristics. Who does that sound like? Who... Who, does, who sounds like the one who is compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and forgiving and loving? It's Jesus Christ. That's who he is, and that's what he's shown to us. And guess what? He lives inside you and me, right? And so the scripture is teaching us when we rely on the spirit and not on the flesh, guess what? The characteristics of Christ will be pushed out of us. How would the characteristics of Christ impact your relationships that are broken? How would they? As it depends on you. How would it change? How would the Holy Spirit working in you and through you impact the broken relationships in your life? Do you desire reconciliation in your relationships? First, reconciliation starts with God. The very fact that God has removed all the obstacles through Jesus Christ so that we can be right with him. Praise God for that. Reconciliation is a movement of love. It requires honesty and it requires a desire for change. Forgiveness is the first step. It is absolutely necessary but remember forgiveness is mainly between you and the lord before it ever gets to the other person reconciliation requires you and the other person to be committed to the process of being honest making a movement of love and a desire for change based on the work of the gospel in you so reconciliation is possible when forgiveness is given and received but reconciliation isn't always possible depending on the hurt depending on the other person, and in fact, depending on you too, right? So as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We're, we're just doing like a broad view of these topics, right? And you're probably sitting there, you don't know my situation, Pastor. You're probably right, I don't. But my prayer is that we begin to understand the beauty and the power of the gospel, that we don't just lump the brokenness of our relationships in one thing, that we have to understand that, that forgiveness is extremely important, but forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation, right? It doesn't mean that things are back the way they used to be. But forgiveness gives life to reconciliation, right? And, and you have a responsibility in that. And it's based on the power of the gospel in you and through you. Now, you may be sitting here and say, I want to reconcile with this person. Have you been honest about what you've done? Have you acknowledged your hurt and your sin, first and foremost, to the Lord, and then secondly, to the person you've offended? I mean, truly been honest. Have you truly desired change? There's absolutely no way that you're going to reconcile a marriage if you committed adultery and not be willing to show your spouse your cell phone, right? It doesn't, doesn't happen. Again, we're talking about some deep things here. But do you have a desire for change based on the finished work of Christ in your life? You are new in Christ. Live in the new power that you have in him. Again, that's just one topic. But I know there's a lot of hurt when it comes to relationships. Again, I'm experiencing my own hurts when it comes to relationships. So just as I share with you, God has been sharing with me. Are you willing to make the first move? 
Are you willing to be honest? And I encourage you, don't go to them first. Go to the Lord first, because that will be the spiritual power that you need to enter into that warfare. And when you come out of that war, you will glorify the Lord. Are you willing to make the first move? Are you willing to be honest? And are you willing to change?